this is very refreshing for me. Uh, I have uh, loved academia, uh, but I have not been allowed to uh, have much time in academia, and I have been, uh, I won't say a fighting fool, but I sure haven't had as much time as I would like uh, to uh, get back into academia, to ask those tough, penetrating questions, to always challenge assumptions, and have that sort of uh, uh, Socratic dialogue, uh, that learning uh, environment within which uh, I can grow in terms of my learning and then, my, as a result, my ability to contribute. So this is very refreshing for me to get out of the activity trap, if you will, and uh, get back with some people that, are, that are, uh, have inquiring minds and uh, have high standards of, uh, of inquiry and dialogue and attempt to understanding with a, a passion for learning. So I, I'm glad to be back with a group that shares that passion for learning. As was said, I was uh, <clears throat> asked to come speak about strategy, military transformation, and air power. Um, I will just, uh, my plan really is to uh, just throw a few ideas out at you, a few observations, so it stimulates uh, your minds and uh, your concerns and your questions that you might have so that we could spend most of the time in a discussion afterwards and trying to understand better uh, where we are in this world, what are the real security challenges that uh, many of your generation fits for the many students that are here. And then uh, also, um, maybe as a result of that, uh, uh, dialogue, have a better understanding about how to proceed into the future and meeting some of these things. Uh, many argue that we're in the midst of a uh, chapter of history when potentially cataclysmic dangers. Are we in the cusp of a series of dramatic upheavals? Will global demographic shifts, changing age structures, migration of peoples lead to friction and ultimately violent conflict? Will rapid urbanization and unassimilated cultural enclaves collapse weak or failing states or paralyze others? Will the competition for energy, arable land, and or water lead to new tensions and violence in the upcoming years? Will loose nukes or bioweapons in the hands of those who would hate or are jealous of America lead to a Another tragic catastrophe. Will today's proliferation of information, whether factual or not, increase cultural misunderstandings, tensions, and distrust between the haves and the have-nots? And may this lead to escalating violence? Since globalization is upon us in the 21st century, 21st century security policy must address the reality that local disruptions have the potential to rapidly stimulate widespread political, social, ideological, and economic consequences. As such, the daunting challenge of your national security professionals and organizations, to include the U.S. military, how, this, how are we to meet this daunting challenge? And I think the way uh, we need to approach it is to be able to respond to a variety of global threats, perhaps at a moment's notice, to limit or to prevent such disruptions and ensure the preservations of our values and our freedoms, as well as the free flow of goods and services on land and sea and in the air, space, and cyberspace. 
and the latter is kind of my business. They are also necessary for our economy and our society. Frankly, I believe the primary way to credibly ensure the military can fulfill its role in this environment is to invest in 21st century technology. Technology that enables active monitoring of potential threats. Technology that uh, gives us the capability to rapidly deploy and to precisely employ uh, non-lethal as well as sometimes, unfortunately, lethal capabilities to achieve the desired objectives that we have. Now, of course, there is far more to a successful national security strategy than just technology. Good human, good human intelligence, an effective interagency process, a reliable coalition support, just name a few. But a nation whose strength and whose preferred style is via technology, who has little tolerance for United States casualties, and is going to search first for technological solutions that put fewer Americans' lives at risk. Technology is an important variable, an important factor. Besides, uh, we in the military have limited influence over interagency processes, foreign policy, and other big strategic policy issues. Nevertheless, as uh, Joe Nye from Harvard, I think, put it recently, ignoring the role of military security in an economic, in an era of economic and information growth is like forgetting the importance of oxygen to our breathing. In the above environment that I've just described, we cannot afford to short ourselves on oxygen, especially if we're spooked by the sticker price for uh, defense. Let me put this last point in historical perspective, and then at the end you can judge. We spent 37% of our GDP on defense in World War II. We spent 12% of our GDP in Korea, the Korean War, 9% in the Vietnam War, 6% in the Reagan era, and in today's global war on terror, post 9-11, we are spending well under 4% on GDP. Uh, on defense. So using unclassified sources, how great are the threats to our national security? As you all know, we're involved in a new kind of war with an implacable enemy who invokes an extremist brand of Islam against America's way of life and in those of our secular allies. It is not tied to geographic boundaries. It operates inside, inside shadowy states and non-states. It operates in non-traditional domains, uses non-traditional means, and is unabashedly unrestrained by established international norms of behavior, laws of armed conflict, uh, or treatment of non-combatants. Regardless of whether we should have invaded Iraq, these extremists have declared a global war on us and our way of life, and they have done so with fanatic determination. We have no choice but to face this threat responsibly and persistently, or face the consequences of not doing so. But we security pro professionals also have to worry about other emerging threats. You know, the missile family in the 21st century, ranging from rockets, mortars, to cruise and ballistic missiles, to inter intercontinental missiles with possibly weapons of mass destruction or not, with ever-increasing range, accuracy, and lethal payloads are being rapidly proliferated to potential adversaries worldwide. 
Many are cheap. All are credible. A credible attempt to offset opponents who have military superiority in training tactics and power. In sufficient numbers, these missiles can overwhelm defensive systems and cause great damage to even material, mature military states. We have one example last January when the Chinese shot down a satellite with one of these missiles causing an extensive space debris field, which has subsequently caused many nations, particularly the United States, uh, to expend precious fuel on boards our satellites to avoid collisions with this debris field of over 1,600 parts. We are extraordinarily dependent upon space. It is estimated that that over $90 billion a year is contributed by space. It goes into our economy, uh, our economy for treat in, in areas ranging from, treat to, from truck fleet management to credit card validations, pay at pump services, ATM withdrawals, high-speed Internet, traffic, weather, sports, reports, almost all TV and radio distribution, et cetera, et cetera. Space is already absolutely critical for our global commerce and our communications, and yes, as a result, our security, more so than any other nation, at least. And whether we like it or not, a hostile capability has been demonstrated in space. And as more offensive capability is being developed there and elsewhere, um, potential adversaries and potential friends alike are looking at how we respond to that incident. And I must point out, too, how much your nations increasingly relies on space for situation awareness, our military relies on it for, for um, situation awareness, missile warnings, intelligence, communications, command and control, navigation, and many other necessities that our society sometimes shares too. We've reached a day when one must have space superiority or freedom of action in space to enable air and subsequently surface superiority or the conditions for successful operations in those domains. And we must protect our military and commercial assets in space, and failing that, we must be prepared to lose and or reconstitute those assets. It will not be cheap, especially since our Cold War constellation is running out of fuel and will need to be replenished and replaced within the ne next 9 to 12 years. So today, space primarily uses, moves data. It uses electronics and the electromagnetic spectrum to collect, store, and manipulate data or data. We call that domain cyberspace. Cyberspace exists virtually everywhere today, and our nation relies on it heavily. It, too, is a strategic center of gravity for our society and, consequently, our security. By the way, current potential adversaries have declared that the electromagnetic spectrum is the fifth dimension battle space, and we are today, unclassified sources, literally experiencing tens of thousands of attacks on our nets each year. And they are increasing in sophistication. In short, we are at war in cyberspace. We continue to focus on improving our defenses but you don't know what you don't know. As you know, there are terrorism universities on the Internet. Enemies have ample freedom of action on the Internet to reach their audiences, and they reach them quite effectively. 
The enemy knows how Western media functions and influences public opinion at home and abroad. And, and adversaries often stage or provoke attacks that can be embarrassingly filmed, portrayed, staged, and edited very quickly and have an immediate strategic effect via the Internet or via our speed-to-the-market 24-7 cable news channels, often in defiance of the full facts on the ground. Most agree we have not been faring well in this domain. And you can, you can ask Estonia how it feels to feel the brunt of uh, Russian cyber gangs uh, earlier this year, back in uh, late April. And if it weren't enough, we have to worry about other emerging threats, potential threats to our society. And it's stemming from nanotechnologies, passive detection systems, directed energy, plasmic shielding, and others that are beginning to emerge on the scene. So how do we develop successful strategies in this challenging environment? In the 21st century, strategic thinking is as difficult as it is vital. Strategy remains a constant adaptation of what we call, call ends or objectives, ways, the how, and means or the tools to the shifting conditions in an environment of war where chance, uncertainty, friction, and ambiguity dominate. Will the strategy work in the unknowable next time or the next test where the enemy gets a vote? We can still look, I think, to the great theorists of the past for some insights. Clausewitz's uh, observation that uh, circumstances vary so enormously in war and are so undefinable that a vast array of factors has to be appreciated, mostly in light of the probabilities alone. The man responsible for evaluating the whole must bring to his task the quality of intuition that perceives the truth at every point, unquote. Well, how does the 21st century strategist develop this quality of intuition? He studies war. He studies military and world histories. He studies cultures. He visits cultures. He studies technology. He reads biographies. He understands his political, social, and military systems. He understands those of his allies. He understands that a wide variety of factors, politics, economics, geography, history, culture, religion, ideology, propaganda, and many more influence strategic behavior in subtle but important ways. He trains, he rehearses, he exercises, he studies continuously. Most importantly, he listens and he learns. His focus is on the ways in which available means could be employed to achieve the desired ends with acceptable risk amidst a vast array of dynamic variables. He is aware of how polished politicians and policy limit our ways and means and ultimately affect the objectives that are achievable. 
he realizes operational and tactical realities that also may limit the options available. The essence of his strategic effectiveness is the ability to understand his war and his adversary and use imagination, intuition, and understanding to connect seemingly disparate activities, issues, and areas of concern into a coherent whole. His lifetime of intellectual and professional development must first produce, as that deceased Prussian again observed, an understanding of the nature of the war in which he's in, and to not mistake it for what it is not. And then, with great foresight, the successful strategist conveys a clear vision of an achievable end state, clearly communicates a path to its achievement, and maintains a flexibility to adapt if it is not working at acceptable risk and cost. Successful strategies require means or tools and organizational approaches that are relevant and effective to the task at hand or on the horizon for tomorrow. Now, we have fashionably called that quest military transformation. It requires material, organizational, and human investment. Now, let me start first with material investment. Frankly, the military, and especially the Air Force, probably the most technological service, has been on a procurement holiday for the past several decades. And I can't overemphasize our need now to recapitalize that force. The average age of your nation's Air Force, this is aircraft, is over 24 years old. It is the oldest force in the, in the history of our military. The cost to maintain this old fleet has increased dramatically. We have some aircraft like the venerable old B-52 that is nearly 50 years old. And the way we are going, the last B-52 pilot's grandmother has yet to be born. To put that in perspective, our B-52 bomber and our KC-135 air refueling tanker that you have down here at Rickenbacker Field is akin to flying biplanes like the Sockbuth Camel at the end of the Vietnam War. Extended combat ops are wearing out our aircraft at five times the normal aging rate. Uh, let's throw up a chart just real quick. I promise not to bore you too much with PowerPoint. My professors taught me that if I couldn't communicate without slides, I wasn't good enough for a degree. But I'm going to, there are some pictures that might uh, register, stimulate more of your senses than certainly my voice will. And if we don't get this slide, the wor world won't end. Right. Okay. We are, uh, you can see the wars in my career. My first war was a desert storm as a major. There's provide comfort. But you can see the, uh, how much wear and tear are going on these, uh, these aircraft. The number we have deployed, how many there are flying, and we have 1,280 fewer aircraft now than we had at the end of Desert Storm. So we have fewer aircraft, they're flying more, and uh, they're wearing out faster. Some of these aircraft, uh, go ahead and kill the slide. Some of these aircraft are, uh, 
are uh, so old that we have to restart production lines for spare parts and retrain contractors. That's pretty expensive, especially when you try to retire them and Congress will not let you retire them. So it adds to the taxpayer's bill and it obviously comes out of other pots of money that we'd like to use to transform our Air Force. Um, the uh, cost, these maintenance costs I just talked about, have escalated over 87% in the last 10 years. Uh, they're accelerated by rising fuel costs. We all know about that. We consume more fuel than any other entity in, the, in this country. Um, higher contractor fees increased, as I said, spare parts costs, increased utility costs. And again, sometimes uh, we have to uh, restart assembly lines, and that's very expensive to keep these old birds flying. During uh, our procurement holiday, other nations did not take the procurement holiday. We seem to be preoccupied. The Air Force, your Air Force, has been at war since 1991. Steady combat ever since. And during that time, other nations have not been on a procurement holiday. They have produced generations of aircraft, several generations of aircraft, beyond the production of our latest aircraft. Um, they have produced a new surface-to-air missile systems designed to defeat our aircraft. Counter space systems that in some cases, uh, both the surface-to-air missiles, the uh, adversary, potential adversary aircraft, and spacecraft are far more modern with higher technology than we have. While some would argue that globalization may reduce the likelihood of nation-state versus nation-state conflict, history invokes us to continue to prepare for the worst case while working towards the preferred peaceful ends. As such, I don't believe the American people would want their sons and daughters who are volunteers defending our nation in second or third rate rusting out equipment. The risks and the stakes are simply too high. But with the exception of the C-17 and a new F-22, that's the case. While the technologies require to ensure the Air Force's core missions of what we call global vigilance, global reach, global power, are generally very expensive, they are vital. And they may prove even more so in an increasingly globalized world. In the final analysis, we must ask the question, given the potential threats to our nation and world, some that can strike at the speed of light, should we afford to spend more than the current, I think it is 3.7% of our GDP on defense. First, interagency and coalition collaboration, of course, is, is very critical to national security, and we have much to do in that arena. But I have been asked to focus on air power now and, and on military transformation, so I will now narrow my discussion to that. Maybe we can broaden it back out in the question and answer period. You know, we airmen are tasked to exploit air, space, and cyberspace to defend our nation's interests. That's what the nation expects of us. The nation's, uh, the Air Force's overarching organizational construct, as I mentioned before, is to improve America's capabilities for global vigilance, global reach, and global power. Said another way, we need to know what's going on to get there quickly and to rapidly produce desired effects. Anywhere, anytime, any place. We believe that in the 21st century, unless we have superiority in these third, fourth, and fifth dimensions, we cannot win 
on the surface of the earth. The fact that no American has been attacked from the air since April 13, 1953, is a matter of great pride and hard work. It doesn't just happen. It's made to happen with considerable hard work and, yes, substantial amounts of taxpayers' money. Let me take some time quickly here to discuss uh, these three expressions of, of air power. There is critical security need for timely, relevant, and actionable intelligence so that we can intervene in an effective manner. What we call global vigilance provides us with some timely intelligence on developing crises. We operate over 100 intelligence, warning, weather, and navigation satellites, and we fly more than 150 intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance aircraft sorties every day. Let's go ahead and run a, a brief clip that just kind of shows you some of the technologies that, that we are using in, uh, in command and control. Lots of digits, lots of technologies, all reliant on that space constellation, whatever air constellation you put up to establish that net-enabled warfare. not just lookers and eyes, these are ears too, and they're, they're trying to better integrate them and be able to cue the broad surveillance to an investigated uh, sort of uh, zoom. Okay, that's enough. I guess if you're in the Air Force, you got to show some gee whiz stuff on the, on the film. But, uh, but it's a lot of hard work, and we can get into this later on, but, but our success in the future is to apply the increasingly limited numbers of things we have in our military because our fleet sizes are going down in more uh, knowledgeable ways because we actually know what is going on the ground and we're getting cued to it early so we can posture our forces to be in position to mitigate that crisis or to investigate it. Okay. While the UAVs or unmanned aerial vehicles we operate are relatively new technology, the space-based assets you saw there of our forces depend upon rapidly are also rapidly aging, as I mentioned before. Weather communication, navigation, surveillance satellites are utilized by all services, not just the Air Force. And our nation, too, our commercial um, strength of our nation. It can be used from a special operator navigating in and around the mountains of Afghanistan. It can be used by an aircraft carrier and navigating in and communicating from open seas. Uh, all these assets are aging and need to be replaced, as I mentioned. These systems provide our forces with the eyes, the ears, and the ability to communicate. That is the voice. They are the backbone of what we call the global information grid, and we must face consequences to our security and our economy if we fail to maintain or be able to heal that grid when it's attacked. While identifying potential problems is the first step, I think the next requirement is getting there to do something about it, and that's what we mean by global reach. It allows us to move uh, the required mix of combat forces anywhere in the world in a matter of hours. Our airmen today move over 1,000 tons of cargoes and 2,500 passengers every day. Last year, we moved the equivalent of the entire population of the, of the city of San Antonio, Texas, around uh, the Middle East. Every 90 seconds, one of our airlifters, with the United States flag on its tail, is taking off somewhere in the world. Some fly more than 50 aerial refueling missions each day. 
providing increased range for our air and ground forces and thereby reducing the footprint we have to have in foreign lands. During the recent crisis in uh, Lebanon, hundreds of Air Force transport helicopters and tankers moved 15,000 U.S. and foreign nationals out of harm's way in a matter of hours. Much like our satellite fleet, though, our mobility force is rapidly aging, and you know that from Rickenbacker just down the road. Many of these tanker aircraft provide us with that range and payload to go anywhere in the world and to stay anywhere in the world, stay airborne. Many of them are over 40 years old, and uh, they're very important. And if you'll just please excuse the expression, they pass 1 million pounds of gas per day, extending our reach. The cost to maintain this old fleet has increased dramatically, as we mentioned. And the process of recurring a replacement system is our top priority, not just for the Air Force, but for the Navy and Marines, anybody else that flies airplanes. The ability to get there and project and sustain yourself there is absolutely critical. And we're trying to get a new tanker authorized because uh, the old ones are rusting out. Some of them are The final step is what we call global power in air power. Um, this allows us to apply decisive force when and where it's needed. Potential threats to global order and uh, the global economy should be on notice that there is no place on this earth they can hide. We must be able to hold any target at risk anytime or anywhere. And the fear of retribution must be real in order to deter and dissuade those that don't come into history's limelight in conflict with us. This capability has been very hard to come by. Let me just tell you a little bit about military transformation. Go ahead and bring up the slide on precision. Nope, precision. There. There. Okay. Going back in history, uh, if you look at World War II, you can read the slide for itself. It took about 1,500 V-17s, 9,000 bombs. Average accuracy was 3,300 feet from the target. So if you wanted to hit a target, sometimes it took about 9,000 bombs to really hit it, a point target. In Vietnam, with F-4s, it was the first airplane I flew, about 30 bombs before you could really hit the target. Uh, uh, and again, these are delivered uh, uh, amidst hostile missiles flying around and, and enemy fighters. In Desert Storm, with the F-117 uh, uh, stealth fighter, we, we would carry two laser-guided bombs, and we had two targets hit. Well, do the calculus, do the math. It's quite dramatic that what precision has done over these years. Today, or just a couple of years ago in Iraqi Freedom, uh, we, had one, we could have one B-1, any type of weather, could uh, hit 24 targets at once and hit all 24, very precisely. 19 feet accuracy. Uh, that's the average uh, miss distance. And then today with the B-2, any type of weather, day or night, uh, he can uh, carry eight precision, 80 precision munitions, and one airplane can knock out 80 targets instantly. So there is a quality factor in here that is transformational. You don't have to have as many airplanes to hit that many targets, but those airplanes that get there have to survive. They have to survive to get there. So we are not building as big a fleet. We are shrinking our fleet, but when we shrink it, it has to be just as effective. And and military transformation and precision-guided uh, uh, munitions is helping us get there as well as stealth and a few other things. Okay, next chart. Okay. Um, you can see uh, how this uh, has tra transformed our effectiveness and the efficiencies. Um, and who would have thought 
that, go ahead and bring the next slide up with the, uh, yeah, that guy. Um, who would have thought that this Air Force Special Forces Sergeant on an Afghani pony in Operation uh, Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan shortly after 9-11, who's leading his, leading his fellow Northern armies on horseback, ran into a huge division of tanks manned by the Taliban. And he was able to reach into his little laptop here while they started getting shelled. These folks, what you see here is a photo of our sergeant uh, leading them back on a re-attack. But first when they came over the hill, they started getting shelled by these massive armored arrays. They ran back. He led them forward and said, don't worry. Pulled his radio out, pulled his laptop out, and called his guardian angel overhead here, which was a B-52. And uh, the B-52 annihilated the entire division in a matter of minutes with precise weapons. So never before has a 23-year-old American citizen carried that much power in his radio and in his laptop. So it is a, this is military transformation. I mean, I guess the donkey's transformational too because when he called back, he says, all I need is a leather saddle. This wooden saddle is killing me and I need some oats for my pony. So that's quite transformational. Next chart. Okay. So uh, we have transferred this uh, communication GPS uh, laptop handheld technology to the Navy, to the Marines, to our special forces, and to some coalition partners. And now what I want to tell you how joint this is becoming is uh, this is, uh, this is actual film from uh, a fight in, ba in Baghdad. And what is happening, you're going to actually hear the stuff. This is taken by a Marine who's getting shot at. He's over the shoulder. They're hiding behind a vehicle, and uh, they're being shot at by, uh, by the enemy. And you can hear the bullets go by. You can hear the ping-pings. And he has called in. He is an Air Force sergeant. He is calling in a, uh, a uh, Marine aviator to drop uh, an Air Force weapon. Uh, to try to take out uh, the uh, folks that are, and, and this is in an urban area. So I'll go ahead and run the film and I'll try to describe it. You can hear the bullets. That vehicle down here, shooting. That's the machine exchangement of fire. You just fire right here. That's a bullet. So they see that enemy target. And uh, the Air Force guide us with some happy Marines next turn. So, in an urban area, this kind of precision technology, this joint uh, tactics, uh, techniques, procedures for 911 calls, has revolutionized warfare in terms of uh, transformed our military to not. Uh, make sure we drop the right munition with the right fuse to minimize any damage to the, uh, the nearby neighborhood. So quite a bit different than World War II, quite a bit different than Vietnam, quite a bit different really, really than the first war I was in, which was Iraq, uh, the first Gulf War where we used to drop bridges and not worry. Now we pull the missiles or the bombs off of bridges to let traffic go by, and then we drop it. And sometimes we're getting shot at while we're doing it. So, so a, a progression in precision and discipline uh, in your military. Okay, because of uh, this technology, we're able to quickly locate the technology I talked about uh, and, and, and target folks like Zakawi, 
Uh, because of this technology, we're able to provide streaming video real-time from Air Force aircraft directly to ground forces who guide our actions. I'm going to show you one brief clip uh, from a 130 gunship, AC-130 gunship. This is an Air Force airplane, and they're in on a, uh, um, an Al-Qaeda camp, and there's a mosque that they're hiding near. And I'll go ahead and turn the video on so you listen to the dialogue between the uh, Special Forces guy on the ground and the Air Force crew uh, aboard the AC-130 gunship. Go ahead. We're good. Clear to by, uh, do not engage. Do not just monitor. Roger. He's telling him because he's on the ground and he's seeing where the bad guys are. He's good. Give him it up. The innocent side. Elevation. Roger. You are now clear to engage the moving vehicle. New nominal. Clear to engage. Any personnel around you see. This is at night. You can see the IR also. sensors picking up the warm bodies walking out of the vehicle. Those are people. Those are, frankly, those are. That's for um, far. Um, they're looking around to make sure there are no innocents near. Hey, Danny. The noise you hear that is not a person cheering. He's saying, people running ready. Ready. He's yelling, ready. More moving vehicle and uh, more people cleared to engage all those. Copy. Ready. He's, he's calling ready. He's loaded the round. Moving. Good. Come back on those guys. Here we go. Yeah, another second. Other people coming out of the mosque right now. Ready. Ready. Secondaries. Okay, that's good. I, this is a long film, but it's it just shows you the cooperation and the precision, and that the communications. You can hear how they're trying to be very careful about know where the mosque is, who's running out, which ones are you clear to engage, and which are you not. Who is running out of just fear for the noise that's going off around them? Who is really a bad guy with an AK-47 that we previously identified as a as a bad guy and tried to discriminately uh, take them out. These people don't know what's happening, but it's all done by airmen overhead, uh, working with our special forces on the ground. Okay. Um, finally, what I'd like to do is do one last and probably the most important element of military transformation is our people. Uh, let's start with our commanders. Frankly, our most senior combat commanders are very skilled in the art and science of conventional war. Uh, and most understand how to function in a joint environment, and they do appreciate cultural differences between our services. What they must learn, and therefore what we, must, we need to prioritize, in my view, in our military schools, is how to fight what I would call the three-front war of the 21st century. The first front modern combat leaders must understand is how to fight in a globalized world in the information age. In this world, masses of information are exchanged at the speed of light, most of it beyond the leader's control. A seemingly omnipresent media with speed to the market, a market in which ratings and influence often supersede a quest for truth, have dramatic effects on perceptions and politics, and as a consequence, on risk management. Every tactical decision potentially has a strategic impact. In addition, in a globalized world where economic, economies and information systems are inexorably linked, there are severe constraints on targeting in this domain, even with precise and discriminate weaponry. We do not spend sufficient institutional time, in my estimation, in educating and training our leaders in this information age environment of the globalized world. The second front, I would call, is to understand the fight at home. 
The leader must understand the American political system. The combat leader must know that there is an expectation for short, moral, precise, clean, efficient wars. There's no such thing. Your Air Force has been in continuous conflict, as I said before, since 1991. As a transparent, democratic superpower conducting wars and honoring certain values and processes under the scrutiny of the media and the Congress, it can be quite predictable. Our adversaries know this, and they have studied our patterns and how our system works. They have studied our vulnerabilities as a system and as a military. Our society is accustomed to resolving life's problems in 30 minutes, plus or minus commercials. The last wars we have fought, the hard fighting is over in 90 days. The American people know that. And to boot, there are severe limitations on interagency, cooperation, and what one might label sufficient commitment of a nation at war. Most of the federal government does not have a long-range, robust, detailed, and proven planning methodology like the military has. Nor, for that matter, do they have the resources or necessarily the commitment to a nation that's supposed to be at war. Some people argue that only the CIA and the U.S. military is at war. Many have personal or institutional agendas, and some don't hesitate to leak and advance that agenda. Our war colleges need to spend more time on understanding that reality. The final front of the 21st century military combat leader is to learn to work within a coalition with all its complexities, all the strings attached, all the constraints. In a globalized world, no country, no single country, not even the United States, can initiate autonomous military action and expect to be successful, at least in the long term. Since coalitions are given, modern combat leaders must be astute to the coalition military capabilities and limitations and must be sensitive to the strategic value of keeping the coalition together under stress. In addition, the leader must be sensitive to national coalition and global perceptions of the coalition's actions. In order to facilitate leadership development, and on this front, the Air Force, for example, has invested heavily in building our Air Force to Air Force relationships. We beefed up our language, our international affairs programs, foreign area officer training programs. We've stood up uh, out at Nellis a uh, coalition irregular warfare center of excellence that works with our coalition partners to help not only traditional air power capabilities be more relevant in irregular warfare activities, but they also help vulnerable nations to the spread of terrorism, uh, bolster their air power in their fight against terror. We're doing much better on this front. So beyond our commanders, in the larger combat air force from your nation, we have established a creed at the uh, place I command, the United States Air Force Warfare Center, that focuses on developing what I call the three I's of the 21st century. Military transformation requires, first and foremost, for us to think anew and develop creative approaches to problems with changing circumstances. The first I is innovation. We structure our training, testing, and tactics development out at the Warfare Center to breed disciplined innovation. At the individual and unit level, innovation rests on foresight, aptitude to read current and emerging trends and anticipate their future potential. We give our airmen problems they've never seen before out of Alice, and our red flags, our black flags, green flags, virtual flags, and all the other um, composite, large force, very difficult training that we give them before they go uh, down to the Middle East. And we want them 
to think and act creatively as a team in coming up with creative solutions. This intellectual agility and adaptability is taken into our next I, which we call integration. We must know the technological limitations and capabilities of all our weapons, our weapon systems, our communication systems, as well as those of our sister services and coalition partners. This, combined with an appreciation of how well these partners are trained, factor into our candidate tactics and strategies to fit within a relevant context. Integrating with each other uncovers creative solutions which the sum, by which the sum exceeds the individual parts. First and foremost, we demand integration at the workers. Integration between air, space, cyberspace, sister services, and coalition partners. And the final I is incorporation. It means the rapid learning process whereby assessments of what works and what doesn't work is quickly validated and turned into our new playbook for tomorrow. I mean for tomorrow, like in the morning, not in the distant future. We must be a learning organization that doesn't make the same mistake twice, and one that rapidly propagates learning. We believe that these three eyes, culcated into all of our warrior spirit, will lead us to success in the future and help us adapt and transform to become a more agile and relevant force. But there's a larger conclusion as I conclude. The U.S. military and especially the Air Force is evolving into a more global force just as the people of the world are becoming more globally connected. Successful national security strategies must successfully negotiate the realities within this global context. Citizens of all nations will look to their governments to provide security in the form of freedom, freedom to travel, freedom to exchange goods, services, and ideas. And while our commanders need to thrive in that three-front war of the 21st century I've described, we must all, all of us, be willing to invest in the technologies, often expensive, necessary for our security. With our increasing dependence on the use of space, cyberspace, and air and sea lanes, for our economic and social well-being, we have uncovered new vulnerabilities. We may be one technology and one day from losing superiority in one or more of those domains. Your nation's Air Force is responsible for maintaining airspace and cyberspace superiority. Investing in both the material and the intellectual capital for its success is a wise choice. I'd be honored to take your questions. Thank you. Okay. Sure. Please. I think this, and in many other ways, the best way to do it is to have a frank, frank dialogue with the American people, regardless of party. <laughs> Tell them the facts, and uh, let them know what the dangers are out there, and let them make informed decisions about risk management. Does the next dollar go to health care, 
or does it go to you know an air refueling tanker? Just oversimplify this. Um, that discussion needs to go on. Uh, a fact-based discussion, not emotion-based, not politically or ideological based, but just the facts. And let the American people roll the dice on how much security is enough as they read the tea leaves of the press. Now, we can't get into classified discussions, obviously. But I think with the media, they, uh, we, are, we can access enough information, I think, if we just check the sources and uh, cross-check them against each other to home in on something that's fairly close to truth where we can make informed decisions. So I think it has to be a dialogue with the American people. And I'd like the American people to make uh, those choices before we end up in some sort of uh, 21st century Pearl Harbor event and go, oops, I wish we would have developed it. This is tough business. You know that F-22 that's so fantastic out there right now, uh, it took us 21 years to produce that. You think the world changes in 21 years? It changes a lot. So when you have these high-tech programs uh, that my service is especially involved in, um, it's tough. You have to find something that's very versatile in what you think the future will be like. And then you've got to fight off all the people that want to throw cash at short-term issues. Because if, if, if this cataclysmic event occurs and everybody's wondering, where, what do we do about it? How do we rebuild the space architecture that just collapsed? You can't snap your fingers and, and fix it. It's going to take years to fix it, and you could be at a disadvantage for those years trying to trying to catch up. So, so it just needs to be a risk assessment, informed decisions by the American people. It's responsibility of the administration to bring that. It's responsibility of the media always plays into that too. But I think uh, the the security, the best way to handle security, Mike Worden's opinion, for the future is a frank discussion with the American people, not the politicians, the American people, not the media. Let them discuss the facts and make the risk assessment. The next dollar goes to health care. Fine. The American people knew it. They made a decision. They're willing to deal with the risk. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, Sean. I'm sorry, I missed uh, Pete. I know Pete. What? Yeah, I know. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, 
Well, I'll, I'll tell you in an unclassified sense what, what we're doing. Uh, for the cyber attacks, we're working on that shield. Should we be working on a sword with the shield? We come from a society that's all big in shield. We're the defense department. We're not the war department. So we will put our, our dollars in shields. Um, same thing for space. Right now, we are the, uh, uh, the strongest space power. But um, there are things in the open press and the open literature uh, that, uh, uh, that have shown in not only uh, writings of um, some nations, but also in the activities we see coming from the surface of those nations into outer space, that there are other countries that are doing this stuff in safe in space. So how do we shield our satellites? How do we have enough situation, we call it space situation awareness, to know if that satellite is being jammed by a foreign entity or there's some solar disturbance that's causing it? How do we know when a microsatellite is moving up next to one of our satellites to, um, uh, to interrogate it, to steal stuff from it, or to damage it? and then drives away. These, uh, w w there are enough trends out there that cause us great concern. And it is expensive. It takes time. Uh, like I said, I go back to this thing about um, why would America provoke a space race? Well, I would argue that it, takes, it doesn't take two people to start a race. Uh, we have to uh, balance the uh, effects of a policy decision uh, and we have to, on the other hand, make sure that uh, if something happens that really hurts us, we have to have some alternative to deal with it. So this is a tough discussion. This gets into some black world discussions and things like that, but, but I just think in terms of just space, and I would say the same thing about cyberspace, that the more the American people know about what is happening out there, uh, the more they'll understand and if something happens, why we're just trying to beat the person with a shield. We didn't, it takes time to build, build that sword now, now that they've crossed the Rubicon, so to speak. So, so this is uh, now, I will say we have some black world things to try and do mitigate uh, the asymmetry that would come. But we were also pretty doggone loyal about following our laws and, uh, and not pursuing a lot of things that uh, uh, would be very offensive. Uh, from space. Our, our mindset is defend space, protect it, to defend cyber and protect it, uh, and not provoke a cyber war, although cyber, cyber chaos can occur without the state being involved. So uh, this is where we're going in the 21st century. And when you can't get your GPS to lock on in your car, or your air conditioning goes out, or your computer doesn't log on, uh, you're going to be inconvenienced. But it could be more than an inconvenience when your money doesn't show up in your paycheck. So, so we have to make sure that we work with commercial industry and others to protect. And it's very difficult to protect because you really can't deter like you could if you had a known offensive weapon because you didn't chose not to do that because of the provocation of policy and escalation. Difficult challenges, difficult issues. I don't have easy answers. Go ahead.
Yeah, that's a good question. You know, uh, I had a caller on the uh, radio today. Uh, I did the NPR thing this morning and called in and says, you know, we spend much more in our military than anybody else. Uh, that's true. Um, but to me, it comes as the price of being a superpower. If you want to have that amount of access to, uh, to commerce, you want to have that degree of leverage for your economy, you want to have that sort of cultural freedom, et cetera, et cetera, you have to pay a price. So you ought to be paying for more for your superpower. Uh, things get expensive here if they're built in the U.S. too uh, because of our labor costs and things. So it's going to be expensive. It's going to be good. And hopefully it's good enough to deter people from trying to compete with us. Uh, but I'm not so sure it is. The economies are shifting around. As I said at the very beginning, the, demography, or the demographics are shifting, population moves, aging populations, all sorts of undercurrents that are going on that don't guarantee us staying a superpower. And if you look at history, you don't stay too long as a superpower. So we have to work at it. We have to pay a price. Uh, now, uh, back to the question you had of how close is enough. You know, I mean, if I was to come up here and say, okay, uh, uh, American people, do you want to win this next fight 51 to 49? Or do you want to win it 99 to 1? You make that decision. Because you pay for what you get to a certain extent. So you have to make a decision on how much is enough. That's the toughest question I've dealt with as I've grown up. How much security is enough? You never know. That's why I tried to describe to you the difficult environment we're in and balancing probabilities and then accepting and managing risk. When I communicate with the American people, I just want to, you have to make that risk assessment, not me. I just lay the facts out, talk about the threat, talk about technologies, what I see. You, the American people, need to make it, not some administration or some policy folks. The American people have to say, okay, well, when that happens, I just have to accept the consequences of that risk so that there's less surprise and chaos when, when that risk doesn't plan out like you thought glad you're all very interested in what your government's doing and where it's spending this money. I don't have the easy answers. I'm a security professional, therefore I have to candidly talk about security issues, even if it's not popular in the latest political campaign. Because the history is not going to slow down. Bad people are still going to do what they're going to do and uh, not wait for somebody to get elected or whatever. Uh, there were, so somebody for up here that still had their hand up? Sir, I think you did. Right, April. Uh, I would say by a hostile power. I should have, I should have, I should, I should have caveated that by saying by a hostile power, by a hostile enemy. Yeah. yeah, it was by a hostile power that you know we didn't expect that, so our our guard wasn't up, etc. But I mean. We work very hard. People take it for granted that, well, you're going to have air security because you're American. You're going to have space security. You're going to have cyberspace. You have to work your butt off to keep that, especially when you're so transparent. You've been at war for 20 years. People have been studying you, looking for your vulnerabilities. You go back to the next war, guess what? i got to follow that same pattern because I'm an American. So how do I get ready for them to attack my vulnerabilities? How do I mitigate that? You know, it's not like you're a country that uh, is not democratic or not transparent who can, from the top, direct a development of a technology or development of a capability without asking for anybody's opinion on it and do it, and then unwield it behind their enigmatic cloak. So 
That's just a part of price you pay as Americans. It's not meant to, seven or eight, it's not meant to, our founding fathers did not make our system of government designed to be efficient. It was designed to be effective eventually. Uh, and uh, we kind of, it's like a pendulum. Sooner or later, America will home in on true north. That's the great faith we have. We'll find true north better than any other nation. It just takes us a while to get there. And during that intervening time, is when we're very vulnerable and we're not performing very well. Go ahead. In your earlier remarks, you focused especially on non-state actors mm -hmm. as the threats you're mm -hmm. most concerned about, the Islamic radicals you mentioned in particular. Yep. But you look at this, the uh, threat environment of the present and the near-term future. Mm -hmm. How do you balance the non-state actors right. Well, I, I didn't mention a priority. I mentioned the Islamic extremist threat first, and then I talked about other, non, other state actors. Uh, it is very difficult, and, and I say this, I've had four joint jobs. I try to say this as, a, as a, just a military person. I really worry about my, my culture, uh, uh, who likes to focus on today and tomorrow, and deals with the present. Not that it, we're an impatient society or a disposable society or anything else, but we're really focused. I mean, look, look at the focus. Look at the topics that are splashed around the headlines and the news and the media. And look what the Congress is talking about. You know, it's kind of an urgency uh, which exceeds importancy. You know, everything is urgent, so it's important. But not everything urgent is so the inability to see the important or to weigh the risk between near-term global war on terror fight with weapons of mass destruction that somebody can get their hands on and do something real bad is a huge concern. And then, meanwhile, while you're spending your money on dealing with that and focusing on that, uh, you're taking the accounts from other accounts that were would, in a balanced portfolio, take mitigating strategies for the over-the-horizon uh, um, threats. Uh, our society, particularly Washington, is kind of inclined to focus on the here and now and not balance risks or weigh risks for the short and long term. So uh, you're trying to draw me into the states. It's, it's easy for you to see which states have uh, are building and seeking uh, certain types of weapons, uh, what actions uh, they are taking. Um, uh, you could ask each of these potential countries, um, why are you developing this weapons technology? And it goes well beyond defense of your country. It goes into, it's an, it's an offensive capability. Uh, you don't need that kind of range and that kind of power projection power just to protect the homeland. So these sorts of questions uh, are being posed by our diplomats of these countries but we're not getting any transparency into the rationale. Uh, it's, it's pretty uh, closed. So when you don't have uh, transparency that builds trust and confidence and a more confident risk assessment, uh, then you are very concerned about uh, a closed society with a strong economy, uh, with economic power, 
being able to particularly get its hand on, and I, I, and I use the, the missiles as just, a, just a one example, you know, the strategy of the week, fight a missile. You know, your missile can kill uh, General Warden, you know, flying fighters for 31 years, take on anybody else in a fighter, but I'll be just as dead from a guided missile, uh, from a pilot that is not nearly as capable as, as an American pilot. Doesn't matter, still dead. So these sort of asymmetric tools that are being used uh, against us, technologies, uh, are, 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 are of great concern to us. So I worry about, in some, I worry about our nation's myopic focus on the current fight or whatever's in front of its face and focusing on that and, uh, and losing perspective and a balance between what is important and what seems to be urgent. And uh, there are, uh, you know, when we talk about how do you preserve basic freedoms, what is the biggest threat to our way of life? Uh, I still think state actors with evil intent and, uh, and incredible technologies that we, we haven't invested in uh, are the greatest threat to our ability to be free and to do the things that we do in protection of our values. Uh, now, you put a, a weapon of mass destruction in the hands of a terrorist, that's pretty good, but that's not like buckling the whole country. Uh, so, you know, how do you do that? It's a risk assessment, and it takes a dialogue and a debate to come up with a set of probabilities that you then proportionalize as you build your portfolio for the future. It's a tough discussion, and there are many different perspectives. And again, I go back to my main thesis, so the first question, talk to the American people. Tell them what the risks are. Let them vote what they want to do. Our system doesn't accommodate that yet anyway. Uh, but as sloppy as our system is, I think that dialogue will begin to move politicians, decision makers, and policy. Well, it shouldn't fly, and it won't fly, because we don't talk that way when we meet behind closed doors with Congress in classified sessions. But if you're talking to the American people, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. Right. That's right. And I think that's the, that's the job of the uh, leadership of the country. That's the job of the administration. That's their job, to do that. Um, our job is we, we brief them, uh, classified and unclassified. And it's their job to talk to them. Okay, let's see. who You had yours up for a while. Well, we cut 40,000 people out of the Air Force despite uh, working seven days a week, 14 hours a day. We still cut 40,000. You know why? Because we didn't have money. With the entitlements going up, with the baby boomers, 77 million uh, people going into that, uh, less than 50% of your Defense Department budget can be used in a discretionary way. Most of it, 53 to 56%, is all on people, paychecks, retirement, all that other stuff. So that makes you got discretionary and you don't have that much discretionary really as a service 
but some subset of that, what we decided in the Air Force is because all the discretionary money to include about $22 billion from the Air Force was going to the Army. We were just giving it to the Army because there was service in need, nations in need. And the Navy did the same thing. They turned over billions of dollars to, to the Army to help, help pay for what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. So now that has been reduced. And so the airmen are saying, geez, you know, we can't get enough money for this. You know, what we see is a balancing uh, threats in the future and, and back in the past. Because we are, frankly, the Air Force and the Navy are the first responding strategically deterrent force. Uh, we get there first because we don't have to walk over valleys and around bushes and things. And we, uh, we carry the most firepower uh, of, of, of our services just because of the technologies we have. So um, I don't say that to boasting because I'm a joint officer. I'm just saying those people, those the Navy and the Air Force will be very interested in preserving that global vigilance reach power thing I talked about. So what happens is with the discretionary time, what do you do? Our Air Force decided since we're, the money we're having is going to the Army and there's not enough, that we have to take more salary money, reduce our force 40,000 people and take those money that would be done paying their salaries and use that money to help us buy new tankers and buy equipment. That's how desperate we are to recapitalize the Air Force. And believe me or not, you know, when those 40 jobs goes away, guess who's working now 16 hours a day, 17 hours a day? And so it's really hard. They're working hard. We're having to divest things, the things we'd like. I mean, we, we've, we've cut back on uh, garbage service on our bases. We've cut back on a lot of things to try to save some pennies to, to build some more airplanes or, or to recapitalize our fleet. So. Uh, that's kind of where we are, and that's why you hear about 40,000 people saying, we loved you, thanks for your service, but we need your salary money to buy so that your sons and daughters, or you, as you graduate, for the folks here in ROTC, they'll get into an airplane that's worthy of their country and not an airplane that is being painted over and over again and, and, uh, and uh, not probably going to stand up to what's being developed in other countries. So that's uh, that's tough Tough, tough thing, decision we've made. And frankly, we're not getting as much traction as we'd hoped. Uh, you know, we live in a system that's not pure. We have, we have congressmen that won't let us retire airplanes. So we're sitting on a ramp. Can't close them down. Have to get rid of them, use that money to maintain them uh, for other stuff, new stuff. Uh, same thing for bases. Couldn't close some bases down. We don't see what we have to stay up. You know, all politics is local. So that's just part of the inefficiencies of our government. So when you talk about this big uh, defense bar, we spend more money. How much money of that is just good money? How much of it is caught in the politics and the bureaucracy and other sorts of things that it has to go to? Like a baby boomer generation paying retirement, paying medical bills, all that kind of stuff. So our Air Force has gotten to the draconian measure of things. I'll accept the risk of 40000 less if I just get a few more to put these people in first-rate equipment. Okay, you had a question. Going to what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I can walk in any day uh, out of Nellis into what we call the Predator Operations Center. And I can watch a predator flying overhead a village in Afghanistan where Taliban are. And I can watch him, watch the guy walk out, you know, milk his goat, uh, do whatever he's doing. And I can watch somebody call up and say, that guy's a bad guy. 
he's uh, about to detonate a, an IED, kill him. And I can watch that guy, that little airman, 20 years old, from, I don't know, someplace in America, maybe here. And I can watch him professionally have the discussion and, and kill him. Boom, right there. Uh, live on the screen from half a world away. Um, but I don't do that because you don't want generals down at that level because then they're caught in the activity trap of what they used to do, which is, you know, in my line of business, is a, mostly a fighter pilot, shoot missiles, drop bombs, and dogfight, do stuff like that. Um, I, I have to be above that. I have to get out of that activity, tactical level activity trap and think about marrying the strategy as I talked in my talk, the strategy, uh, the transformation, giving them the guidance, the technologies, the, the strategies, the, the education, the training, so that they'll be a better general than me. So do you have people that do this? We have had presidents that have done that in the past uh, that have said, you don't squeeze that trigger, I'll give you permission to squeeze that trigger. But that may work in a, in a, in a Cuban crisis affair, you know, Cuban missile crisis affair, but it won't work in a big fight where there's all these little fires going on, all these 911 calls going on. So because we can do it, as uh, Sean said, because we can do it doesn't make we should do it. So we try to stay out of that, just train them, give them broad guidance, and keep them connected to the overall campaign strategy. Yes? Well, what we're trying to do, and I'm pretty proud about this, just happened to be in this uniform, that the, uh, the Air Force Guard, the Air Guard, and the um, Air Reserves are pretty doggone good. They're doing a lot of work, and they're rotating all the time, right with the active duty. And I've got a bunch of guardsmen and reservists working for me. I don't even know they're guardsmen and reservists. They were the air combat patch. I don't know. That's how, that's how uh, good our reserve and guards are. Now, what we've been trying to do with the governors, as we understand Title 50, is we've been trying to say, let's give the guard why do they need F-16s? Why are they defending Colorado, for example, with F-16s? Who's going to invade Colorado? Let's get those F-16s out along the perimeter to protect, which we have guys flying over our cities all the time still. It's ever since 9-11. A lot of money's going to guys patrolling overhead Super Bowls and football games and everything else to make sure nobody crashes into a large, important gallery. America never sees that. That's expensive. That's also wearing out our airplanes. But let's take Colorado. Why, why do you need a... Uh, fighter wing to defend Colorado. Let's, how about a joint cargo aircraft, which can be used in a forest fire? Or how about a predator, okay, that you can put up overhead and it can help your police or it can want, look out for forest fires or it can guard your borders along the south or whatever. You know, give them a technology that he can use ACDC, okay, so he can use it as a governor to respond to an emergency. Light cargo aircraft, you can evacuate people, get them in and uh, predators or unmanned aerial systems. We want them to take those because you know what we can do? And we have done this in North Dakota, Texas, Arizona, and California. Is we have people at, in March Air Force Base, Riverside, California, that are actually flying predators in, in Iraq. They're guardsmen, the California Air National Guard, sitting in Los Angeles, doing the same thing we're doing at Nellis out of the hub. We want them to do that. I mean, a guardsman, I mean, that, that way he can, go, he can swing to pull that predator, he says, I, I can't fly your predator in Afghanistan, but I've got one here in the state. 
I'd like to fly it over Yosemite and see what's going on. The governor gives him the order, switches right over to you. So that's the dialogue we're trying to get with in the Air Force with our Guard to make them relevant, both for their government and for their nation. Uh, and, and, you know, there's this emotional thing. Once a fighter pilot, always fighter. You're going to make me fly that unmanned thing or that airlifter thing. When hell freezes over and they go talk to the governor, the governor says, no, we don't want to do that. So we have to get through the politics of our system. Again, we go back. I try to explain our guard system to the Japanese or to the Germans or Italians or Brits. You know, the Brits understand it a little bit but because uh, I had to face it. But, but our, our, our history of the militiaman and our guard is different than most of our coalition partners can understand but we have to explain it to them. We have to make it relevant for the future. And it is not easy. And yes, we do waste money uh, because we, we have things reversed, policy decisions reversed because the governor stood up, put his foot down, pulled us back from history. That's just part of the business. Okay. They shot down one of their own satellites. Right. They didn't announce it. They didn't tell anybody they're going to do it. They just did it. Yeah, it's called an anti-satellite missile. It just killed the satellite. And then it has, like I said before, 6,500 pieces of debris that now we have to spend money maneuvering around. This cloud is floating around in space. I got a, I got imagery of it from one of our satellites. It's, it's all over. Trash space. So. And then that's why I said, you know, what are we going to do about it? Is this going to be Sputnik 2 or is this going to be, well, they certainly wouldn't do that to one of ours, would they? No. I don't know. You, you, you have to make that decision. It's a tough decision as a policy to make those calls. I mean, uh, I'll just say one, one last phrase, in laser, directed energy. And we're trying to defend defensive system against them, lazing our pilot's eyes, or lasing our sensors, blinding them, and stuff like this. It's all defensive shield stuff. Would we love to laze them back? You're darn right we would. Are we getting lazed? Yes, we are. So this is a something else. Americans will go for the shield because it's the defense partner. But is that the smartest way to go for the whole picture in terms of deterring, dissuading, and other sorts of things? That's why, that's why the policy people have to, I think, talk to American people. Okay. We're going to be late for class. So some are going to be late for class, but uh, I think it's a testament to their interest in what you were talking about that they've stayed. I want to thank General Warden very much and thank all of you. Center is